night. Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on this evening? Oh, Matt, 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 I'm having a, a wonderful night. We finally, finally have a story that's in my legal wheelhouse, and I can't wait to talk about it but first i got a question for you what's the best gift you've ever received that is a very good question um i can come up with i I will give two one that is the most the one i've used the most the most practical but still good and one that is the most heartfelt the most practical is an iced tea maker because all i drink nowadays is water and iced tea it's part of the, the diet. things you learn about your co-host. Yeah. Well, it's part of the, the diet that I've been on to lose all the weight I've lost. I, I gave up soda and I've never drank. So Amber, I mean, this was many years ago. I've had this thing for years, but, and I've used it regularly, but Amber bought me an iced tea maker and it's just great. I mean, you just put in ice, you put tea bags into this little thing and it just makes straight up iced tea. Very convenient. Saves me a lot of money on buying iced tea. Tea bags, much cheaper. The most thoughtful and most heartfelt gift that I ever received was also from Amber. For those of you up in the Northeast, you may remember Superstorm Sandy from 2012. I happened to be in Baltimore at the time. I remember it quite well. Yeah. Well, during Superstorm Sandy, a big old tree came through my parents' garage The garage was not used to store cars. It was used to store stuff. It was was storage space. And a bunch of my crap from my childhood was in there. Oh, no. Yeah. Amongst them, which I thought was in the house, but was not, was in the storage in the garage, were a bunch of my toys and things, including the teddy bear that I received when I was five and had hung on to and thought was safely up in the garage. Well, Needless to say, everything in there was sodden and ruined and gone. And this teddy bear was a gift from my grandmother. Well, a few Christmases ago, Amber had hunted down the exact, not the exact same, for want of a better term, make and model of teddy bear with the same little red bow tie and the whole nine yards. And she gave him to me for Christmas. And he now sits on my nightstand just there. Oh, yeah, it's really fun. That's really fucking sweet, Matt. It is. It, it, it got me. And I, I've never been able to quite match. I, 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 she set the gold standard for gifts in our marriage, and I've never been able to top it. But I continue to try. Ah, uh, Good luck with that one. Jesus. Yeah. How about you, Will? Oh, God. You know, I hoisted on my own petard. I should have thought of an answer for this. <laughs> um, let's see. My ex-wife gave me a bar set that looks like an old-timey radio. That's pretty cool. Pretty Absolutely. cool. Uh, she also gave me... There's some website that does composite art of every shot from a movie, basically. Like, they take a, they take a color from... I don't know if it's every shot or every, you know, whatever, but you can, it's, it's a visualization. It's kind of like impressionistic art. She got me one from Smokey and the Bandit. Oh, very cool. Favorite movie, by the way. Let's see what else. 
other gifts across time. Oh, uh, I, I did think of an answer for this, but your your really like heartfelt ones uh, threw me off. Uh, second grade Christmas Super Nintendo. Oh, that is a good one. I have a little bit of fun for the bit area this morning, this afternoon, evening. Ooh, I am uh, wearing today my favorite shirt. I had an event to go to tonight. And so I, you know, had to, you know, not just dress in a schlubby old t-shirt. And so I'm going to move closer to the camera so Will can describe the pattern on this shirt. Ah, it looks, it looks like just a regular old button up, but it's got batarangs on it. It does. It's got the Batman symbol, the Batarang symbol worked into the design. It was something I got through the DC Universe store when DC Universe switched from streaming TV and stuff to just the comic service. Those of us who were willing to go through the transition and stick with our year annual subscriptions got a 20 or $25 credit to the store. And this polo was in there and I was like, sold. Nice. Yeah, I was uh, I was gonna wear my Octopus Man T-shirt from the Effenbirds shop, but uh, it's downstairs and I forgot it. But, but yeah, check out Effenbirds for all of your Octopus Man uh, merchandise needs. Excellent. Okay, so now that we've had our fun, now it's time to start the episode, which is fun in its own way. This week we're reading stories featuring or about Batman's father, Thomas Wayne, a character who has gone through not, I guess, that many changes, but many interpretations, way more than I thought often, especially in modern times. But we'll get to that because our first story is The First Batman from Detective Comics, Volume 1, Number 235. The writer is Bill Finger. The penciler is Sheldon Maldoff. The inker is Stan K. No colorer or letterer is credited, and it's edited by Jack Schiff. The cover date is September of 1956. Discover the story of the first Batman. Who inspired Bruce Wayne, who eventually take up the mantle of the Bat? And how does this tie into the murder of the Waynes? We had actually read a not too much abridged version of this story, as this one's pretty short in the untold legend of the batman this is one of the stories that was sort of composited to make that full origin of batman this is the story of thomas wayne and mobster lou moxon it's i think probably one of the better golden age stories we've read despite my noted dislike of the concept of the wayne's deaths having something to do with a grander conspiracy i think the story itself is a pretty well done story despite some weird golden age stuff but that's weird golden age stuff you got to kind of get used to it yeah amnesia as a plot point at least it does explain and maybe this was in untold legend of the batman but this does explain why young master wayne wasn't shot because yes. here it is we need an alibi for the mobster moxon oh moxon had nothing to do with the hit it was uh, Joey Chill. And I thought that was, that's kind of an, you know, an, an open question. You know, if you're going to shoot a man and his wife, why get cold feet about shooting a kid? I like that, that there was an actual reason why Bruce wasn't shot. But, you know, the rest of this is 
pretty, I'd say, ho-hum. You know, it's it's about what you'd expect. It does not fall into any of the traps that we've seen in some of these. There's nothing in it that's particularly problematic. The art is solid. I mean, Maldorf is one of the major Kane ghosts. He's one of the major Batman artists of that era. And I like the design on Thomas Wayne's costume because the first Batman idea is that Thomas Wayne wore a bat costume, Batman type costume to a costume party. And that on some subconscious level influenced Bruce. And we see that costume here again. And it was, by the way, used fairly regularly during the later middle of Grant Morrison's run on Batman and Batman Robin. Because uh, Dr. Hurt, one of the major villains, wears it in that story. But it's a cool looking costume. It's so recognizably Batman while not being so much Batman that it's like, oh, well, Bruce absolutely just copied that costume. I think, you know, just going back to Untold Legend for a second. And I was struck by reading this in this Batman in the 50s trade. The very next story in the trade is the first Robin. And it just, it just brought to mind that all of the stuff that you could get in going back and looking through all these golden age stories, you could get pretty much the same thing in untold legend, such a loving homage slash compilation of all of these stories. And you know, I, I don't know what that says. I don't know whether you should feel entitled to skip these or reflect on them both as we have, but I just thought it was interesting that First Robin is the next thing in this trade collection. This does give some additional details, including the fact that Moxon's current scheme when Batman finds him is display blimps that his hoods pull up to a building, turn off the display, and then drop down and rob. Look, nobody would expect it, Matt. Nobody would expect it. I will not argue that point. There's also an interesting thing here where there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't quite line up with later continuity. Uh, The fact that Thomas Wayne wasn't wealthy at the time of this story and that he invested his money well and became wealthy over the 10 years that Moxon was in jail. And the fact that Bruce is at least a toddler, if not a little bit older than that. When Thomas wears this costume, the day that Moxon is arrested, Moxon's in jail for 10 years, which would put Bruce as a teenager at the time of the death of his parents. But that don't work out. No, part of it is this is the golden age. So continuity wasn't as key. I mean, also Bruce makes the pledge not at his parents' grave, but in front of a painting. That's part of what Untold Legend of the Batman does. It kind of streamlines out those details that don't work and just focus on the stuff that does. So as of now, how are the Waynes wealthy? Inherited wealth. The Wayne fortune comes from at least the 1800s, if not earlier, uh, from the 1700s. Because they're one of the, had to be older, they're one of the first families of Gotham. Uh, It was shipping and manufacturing. And Thomas, out of the goodness of his heart, wanted to become a doctor. That is part of it. 
here's there's something that maybe someday we will do as a bonus episode a novel called Wayne of Gotham that takes a bunch of the aspects of this story the the Moxon stuff specifically and weaves this strange and interesting parallel narrative between Bruce investigating a case in the present that has ties to his family and Thomas Wayne as a younger man and the mocks and stuff comes in his courtship of Martha. It's been a long time since I read it. I remember it being, there's some stuff in it that's well, not problematic is like, huh? I don't know how I feel about that in the way it deals with Batman's history, but since it's a novel, it's absolutely non-canon, but it would be something to read at some point. Or do, there's an audio book version of it as well, a full play, a full cast radio drama version of it. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's always a question that I've had myself. Why would Thomas go through all of the trouble to be a doctor if he could just be a prominent fail son? Because we have so many of those. Like, uh, like what does Donald Trump Jr. do? What is he qualified to do? Nothing that I can charitably talk about. <laughs> the, the novel Wayne of Gotham, by the way, answered that as not entirely spite, but the fact that his father wanted him to just take over the family business and Thomas wanted to do something more than that because that version of Thomas Wayne's father was a complete monster. And so he wanted to get out from under his father. Didn't one of these stories mention... Grandpapa yes. Wayne? Yes. And that story is, some, again, somewhat more charitable to him, more or less saying that he was just sort of a driven, manly, man's man kind of guy. It doesn't take what Wayne of Gotham did, which is like, there, Thomas's father was, you know, we're going to go hunting and you're going to kill something kind of guy. Mm. Yeah. But yes, the, one of the, the next story we'll discuss does mention Thomas's father. Alfred talks about him. I knew that had happened at some point this week. Here, Thomas is more of a man of action than he is in usual prime earth continuity. Like he takes out Moxon's men and Moxon, he's fisticuffs and knocking Moxon's chair out from under him and all of that. This isn't the quiet reserved doctor of a lot of the later stories. And he also doesn't have the mustache which I'm sorry, I know there are interpretations of Thomas Wayne that doesn't have the little mustache, but I like Thomas Wayne with a mustache. He looks different. And there's a Batman adventure story we'll get to someday about Bruce and looking in the mirror and seeing the mustache and seeing his father in that, how much more he looks like his father when he had to put on facial hair for a disguise. See lots of disguises this episode too. Yes. Okay, this also is not how polygraphs work. There's no way anyone is going to be like, oh, he passed the polygraph. He absolutely isn't guilty. It's like, no, there are plenty of ways to beat a polygraph. Even I know that. Not admissible as evidence. For that exact reason. Yeah, as you mentioned, there's amnesia involved here. Oh, amnesia. This is our second late golden age story featuring amnesia after uh, Superman's Secret Kingdom. The less said about that, the better. Yeah, this one does not fall into that that range of, of stories. And 
this is also a story that conveniently doesn't have Alfred, despite Alfred having been introduced in 1943. You'd think, why are Bruce and Dick spending a you know, Saturday morning cleaning out the attic? So you can put more shit in the attic, man. Why else would you clean out an attic? Fair. I don't think this qualifies entirely as a trifle, as it does have all manner of sort of repercussions, but it's a short. There's not a ton to it. By the way, I don't, since he only appeared in the very beginning of it and was unceremoniously murdered, uh, Lou Moxon did appear in that first issue of War Games. He does pop up again in the early aughts and is unceremoniously killed at the beginning of War Games. He was in Brubaker's run on Batman. I don't feel like there's a lot more to say here. I think we got it all. So that means it's time to put Detective Comics number 235, the first Batman on the big board. We are at 126 stories on our big board. Uh, Number one is Batman Year One from Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. Number 25 is Batman 66, The Lost Episode. Number 50 is Batman the Spirit. And coming at number 69 for the children, Batman Judge Dredd, Judgment on Gotham. Nice. Number 75 is The Clown at Midnight from Batman 663. Number 100 is The Joker, original graphic novel. And down at the bottom at 126 is Batman White Knight. So we are... I don't know if we're, we're we're not in the dregs here no we the highest book we have from this era is uh the mightiest team in the world from superman volume one number 76 the f- origin of the batman superman team how do we feel this stands up against that uh where is that that is 64 64 yeah right there right there superman 76 hmm that story was fairly silly a lot of lois lane shenanigans yes uh, a lot of uh they're just friends staying with each other in a cabin for the shippers out there the ship shipping on a ship this one is uh... I think a little more emotionally resonant. I mean, there are bits of this of Bruce, you know, talking about how, you know, wearing his father's costume at the end to confront Moxon feels like he's bringing his father along to finally close the case on the Wayne murder. I I like that, that beat. Yeah. So I would be inclined to put it above that. So above 64. Right. It does not, though, go above 56, which is the Untold Legend of the Batman, which synthesizes so many of these stories. At least I don't think so. No, no, no. I, I, I believe you're correct. 56, Untold Legend, much more complicated than, than this particular story here. So we've got a, a fairly small range in there. I, I also don't think it beats the post-crisis origin of Jason Todd at 58. It might be 
basically right above Superman 76. So yeah. I am a big fan of uh, Superman annual number three at 62. I need, I'll be honest. I know that I have read sort of Azrael at 63, but I don't remember anything from it. Yeah. It's the, the first Azrael story. It's there we go. Yeah. It's that's, that's kind of a nothing book. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's got some cool bits. It introduces an important character, but it's not, it barely introduces him. Barely. Fair. But I think this still probably, that still does beat this by a bit. So I think this is our new number 64, right above uh, Mightiest Team in the World. Works for me. All right. Our next story is Cold Case from Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers 201 to 203. The writer is Tristos Gage with pencils by Ron Wagner, inks by Bill Reinhold, colors by James Sinclair, letters by Phil Balsman, edited by Joey Cavalieri and Michael Wright. The cover dates are May to June of 2006. The cold case of the Robinson Park Ripper heats up when a true crime writer comes up with a new theory on the killer's identity, Thomas Wayne. Now Batman must investigate the case to clear his father's name and find the real killer. This is one I haven't read since it first came out, but it's one that stuck in my head as one of the better stories from the waning years of Legends of the Dark Knight. Because we're really near the end of that series run where the book ended in the two teens. Oh, we are at the very tail end. Yeah. We've, we've read near this, the War Games chapters were in the 180s, but this is by far the latest we've read in Legends of the Dark Knight. Yeah, when you're using your anthology series to cross over with other books, no, you're, those don't count. Before that, those were really significant. There was uh, one that was a big event, you know, it was issue 27. It was the first time that all three Bat books at that point, Batman, Detective, and Legends crossed over. And then there were parts of Night Quest and Night's End, the, the Nightfall follow-ups. And then it became part of No Man's Land. And after that, it was a lot more part of the main Batman family. And it missed a lot of the significance after that. This one's a straight-up mystery story. And it's, you know, it's a Batman as detective story. It's Batman investigating these murders, trying to clear Thomas's name as a serial killer. So I said all the way back in our intro that this was in my legal wheelhouse. And here we are. It is my time to shine as a JD slash communications PhD specializing in media law. So we got True Crimes writer puts out this book. Alleges that Thomas Wayne is the Robinson Park Ripper. Bruce says, I'm going to get my lawyers on the phone. We're going to stop the publication here. We got a couple of different theories that he could use. The first, and what, uh, what most people would, would probably go with, defamation. Specifically libel, because you are defaming uh, someone's character in print, suggesting that they are a murderer. Usually defamatory. However... Matt, why is it not defamatory here? Because Thomas is dead? That's a bingo. That's no. a bingo. You cannot defame a dead person. 
you can say whatever you want because they no longer have a reputation to protect. So if in the world of DC Comics, you want to call Thomas Wayne a murderer, you can do it. You can absolutely do it. Okay, I am going to add a wrinkle to that. Okay. This is a world where people fairly regularly return from the dead. Hmm. Do we think there might be legal precedent here for the possibility that you have to be a little more cagey because someone could come back from the dead? In that instance, you're still suing to protect somebody else's reputation. So you'd have so Thomas would have to resurrect. He would have to fall into the Lazarus pit, come back, see that the book was published, and then decide to sue. You can't you can't sue to protect somebody else's reputation. So that's that's one theory automatically out the window. Your backup theory, which has been a backup theory for a long time for libel, intentional infliction of emotional distress. It makes Bruce very, very sad to have this book come out. Because he is in the public spotlight, unfortunately, he has to bear the slings and arrows of insults and sad things that may befall him. Uh, We see that in Hustler versus Falwell where Hustler Magazine put out a very funny parody ad suggesting that Jerry Falwell had sex with his mother in an outhouse, which was not defamatory because it was a joke. Reasonable people saw it as a joke, but he was a famous person. You got to take the shit that comes with being famous. So also Snyder versus Phelps, uh, Westboro Baptist Church case uh, said that, hey, they're theoretically commenting on matters of public concern so they can be mean and unsettling toward individuals so bruce has got very 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 little chance of prevailing on that theory and certainly no chance of prevailing on libel so shit out of luck there and here's here's the kicker in the american legal system we have noticed a trend of the rich and the wealthy and the powerful filing defamation suits to silence people, which is more or less what Bruce is trying to do here. We call those strategic lawsuits against public participation, slap suits. Many states, not Alabama, but many states have enacted reforms that basically punish people who bring these suits, uh, enabling them to be dismissed uh, much earlier in the process and for plaintiffs to have to pay costs. So theoretically, Assuming that Gotham is a model jurisdiction and Gotham has a slap statute, Bruce could bring this suit, delay printing of the book for, I don't know, a time, moments, weeks, perhaps, but eventually he's probably going to have to wind up paying court costs. So that's my legal analysis on cold case. Hmm. I mean, if he's theoretically, I mean, he is Batman delaying the publication long enough for him to prove thomas's innocence might be worth it to him but is the reporter not just going to publish the book anyway well it depends on if he could actually find the killer and being that he's batman he could probably be confident that he could find the killer before the book was actually published and then it would no longer bear the merit of being published because the killer has been found who is not thomas uh we're thinking about a world in which facts matter Oh, yeah, there's that. But I I will say the reporter in here before he is uh, brutally murdered um, is is at least portrayed as as trying to get the story right. This somehow independently wealthy reporter. Yeah. Which is hilarious. 
I like this story. I think there's some real cool bits to it. I like that it's Batman really detectiving. It's a lot of investigation, a lot of procedure. Gage was a TV writer on The Law and Orders before this. So you can see some of that procedural stuff in this book. Strange career. What year did this come out again? This was early in his career. It's 06. 06. The last time I remember reading anything Gage was basically over in Avatar land. So weird that you go from writing this to basically gore and smut comics. He still works. I mean, he, he does a lot of work for Marvel. He was, the I think, the go-to for filling in for Dan Slott or co-writing with Dan Slott when Dan Slott was running late on various books. I think he shows up in that Marvel docu-series. I've always liked Gage. This, he wrote a, his first comic work, I believe was a Deadshot miniseries from the year before that I really enjoyed. I can't remember what else, but I know I've read a bunch of his work over the years and I've really enjoyed a lot of it. There isn't a lot of Thomas Wayne in this, but this is also a story where we see Bruce at times struggling with who the man his father was or because he doesn't know his father. His father died when he was eight. So he has to go to Alfred to ask him about his father. And it ends with Bruce and Alfred and Leslie and Bruce asking for a story about his father which is reminiscent of the end of an episode of Batman, the animated series, paging the crime doctor, where there's a doctor who he's become a mob doctor because he lost his license. And he was medical school friends with Thomas and Leslie. Batman gets involved in the case. And in the end, the doctor is arrested and he goes to jail willingly. And Bruce meets him and is willing to pay for his legal fees and Bruce's like, well, I want something because the doctor was in Rupert Thorne's pocket. He was, he was Thorne's brother. And he, you know, well, and he's like, I'm not going to be anyone's puppet ever again or something to that effect. And Bruce just looks at him and this plaintive look in this beautifully animated plaintive look in his face. And Kevin Conroy kills this line. Please tell me about my father. No. Yeah. And it's a wonderful ending to that episode. But there is a bit of that when Bruce comes to Alfred here and asks him, what kind of man was my father? He's a serious detective. And as it says on the text, like he has to consider all suspects. That includes Thomas. Yeah. The true crime writer was the weirdest part of this story. Not only was he independently wealthy, but he seemed to be a bigger man than Bruce, like physically. Like he had a. Oh, he's he swole. He's swole. Yeah. He worked out twice a day. And this is more modern than most Legends of the Dark Knight stories. It's clearly set after No Man's Land because there's talk of the earthquake and the city isn't in shambles. And there's a line about Bruce Wayne murderer. Uh, we've heard that before. So there's there was a rest- also a nod to uh, Nightfall. Yes. I noticed that. It's clearly in a period much closer to the present. I like the penguin in this story that every time Batman comes in, he keeps sending his thugs after him. And in the end, penguin just gives him the information. And Batman's like, why, why did you send them after me when you were going to give me the information anyway? 
for the amount I pay them, they could use the occasional beating. And who knows? And also, they might get lucky. Yeah. It's a great line. I really like Gage's cobble pot. So how did you feel about the end? About the reveal on who the Ripper was? I'm of mixed minds. I wasn't disappointed, but I figure Batman could have sussed that out a little bit sooner, a little bit faster. I don't think, spoiler, Freeze would have been that good at hiding his identity. I am also a little bit wary of letting such a fundamental change to Freeze and Nora happen in kind of the death throes of this book. Of course, all of this is kind of washed away with New 52. So what does it really matter? I, I don't know. If I'm DC, I, I don't let this series, you know, monkey around with one of not an A-list Bat villain, but certainly a B-list. B plus, A minus. Yeah. Before Batman the Animated Series, yeah, he was a B-list at best. But Batman the Animated Series puts Freeze up in the lower part of the top echelon. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. The motivation to protect Nora's reputation is one of the only things that I could see getting Freeze this worked up. It makes sense because I had been through the entire thing knowing this time, having read it once before, I was like, I remember that it was Freeze, but I can't remember why he's going to all of this trouble to make it not seem like it's him. And you get to the end, it's like, oh, okay okay, it's about protecting Nora and not protecting himself. That makes more sense. And this was also before it turned out Nora really wasn't dead. That that was something that was retconned later, right before Infinite Crisis. And I, I've always preferred the, I don't know, I, I don't necessarily go for the fridging of Nora, no pun intended. Yeah, I didn't, the minute I said it, it's like, oh, oh that's not good. There's no good end to this sentence. No, but I'm not in love with the fact that Dini, when the reins were taken off and he was able to transfer Freeze's origin to the comics, had Freeze accidentally kill her in a fight with Batman. I prefer her Mm. still being alive, but when they did it, when it's to be done, let it be done. Weird retcons where she was somehow resurrected don't work for me either. I'll say this. This might be heresy. Uh, I like the new 52 Scott Snyder version where Freeze is just a crazy obsessed weirdo and it's Nora's not his wife. I thought that was that made my jaw drop when I read that. And I thought that was an interesting twist. But that does take away from Freeze as a sympathetic character, which maybe we don't need so many villains that we can sympathize with. I agree that we don't need as many villains we can sympathize with. I like that Freeze is one of them. Yeah. The, the two Bat Rogues that I feel like you should be able to sympathize with are Two-Face and Freeze. The rest of them can be monsters. No problem. But I prefer Two-Face and Freeze as sympathetic villains. You give me two. I'm going to go Two-Face and Croc. Okay, I can see that. I think there's a good croc story to be told in like the vein of body horror and modern like image shaming and croc just being this tortured guy and just doing his best to just live out in like, I don't know, the Gotham swamps and not be a monster. 
and yet Batman's always hassling him. I could see that story. I mean, and you've got the pathos of him, you know, being born this way and the abuse he would have taken and all of that. But yeah, I mean, I, I can agree with that, that there is potential there for a similar croc thing. I, I've just, I like Freeze that way, but I accept that the, the Snyder origin is an interesting origin, no doubt. There's a story there that works. It's just not the story that I particularly was enamored with. Do you have anything else? Mm, I thought the narration throughout this was great. Um, you know, you talked about it being steps in the process. I thought Batman explained his methodology quite well. My quibbles with, you know, with Noir and everything aside, I, I thought it was a good read. Yeah. I also like that this answers an issue that I've heard people raise. You know, why does Batman need Oracle? He's the world's greatest detective. Oracle is able to do this stuff quickly and not pull Batman out of the field. And there are things that Oracle can't do. Batman still needs those detective skills because there's things that aren't digital. There are things that require pounding the pavement. So I don't want to say a convenience that's demeaning to Barbara, who's so much more, but Oracle provides an important service, but there's so much more that Batman can do when he is freed up to do those things. And this story plays with that. And I like that. We good? Yeah, I think we're good. All right. That means it's time to put Batman Legends of the Dark Knight cold case on the big board. I mean, I think we're we're up in the top half. I think this is a genuinely enjoyable Batman mystery story. So top half at this point. Uh... It's actually right around where we just were. Because uh, we're <laughs> around one 130 at on the big board and 65 which would be halfway through is uh mightiest team in the world i think we could do a little bit better than dead smack in the middle yeah um i agree i'm gonna put this above killing joke that's gonna be my standard rule yeah. going forward yeah um what about i'm i'm looking somewhere in the low 40s because at 46, you've got Blood Secrets, that Detective Comics annual with uh, Harvey Harris, which is another mystery story. I'm not sure if it's better or worse than that, but I think it's around that area. Yeah, 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 yeah. Remind me of Batman and Robin at 45. Uh, first appearance of Professor Pig, Dick's first outing as Batman. Some great Alfred material, gorgeous Frank Quitely art. That's uh, Morrison, right? Yeah. The art on this, by the way, which we didn't talk about, we really should remember to, is perfectly middle-of-the-road superhero art. I'd be inclined to say under Blood Secrets, but, you know, yeah, I'm not too picky. No, I think, and below that is my beginning and my probable end. Another re- telling of Batman's origin, the one with him and Leslie Tompkins talking over Jason Todd's wounded body. Ooh, and then below that is Where Were You the Night Batman Was Killed, which is so friggin' fun. How about above Batman 234? Yeah, I think above, you know, uh, 
the, the story that once again reminds us, Harvey, smash and grab. Smash and grab. Just get the doubloons and get the hell out, Harv. Yeah, I think that makes it our new 49, and I'm good with that. And now our final story, Night of Vengeance. This is Flashpoint, Batman, Night of Vengeance, numbers one through three. The writer is Brian Azzarello. The penciler is Eduardo Rizzo with inks by Rizzo. Colors by Patricia Mulvihill. Letters by Clem Robbins and edited by Rex Ogle and Eddie Berganza. Cover dates are August to October of 2011. In a world where Bruce Wayne was killed in Crime Alley and not Thomas and Martha, Thomas Wayne is a more brutal Batman, and his hunt for the Joker will lead to some particularly dark revelations. Right out of the gate, problematic creator watch. Eddie Berganza, editor on this, bad dude. This is part of the Flashpoint event, the event that would set off the New 52, where Barry Allen went back in time and saved his mother from being murdered. And somehow this created a ripple effect that completely changed the entirety of the DC universe. How one lady dying or not dying could do that, meh. But we're in a world where Atlantis and Themyscira are at war, where Superman was captured by the US government and has been experimented on for all these years, and where Bruce Wayne was killed in the alley and not Thomas and Martha. Thomas is Batman who kills all of his nemeses, except the Joker. And at the end of part two, we find out why. And I'm going to spoil it right at the top because we're going to have to discuss it. Martha Wayne is the Joker in this world. I am not so sure that there is a series here without that one idea. Yeah, because otherwise what it really is is a Punisher story. It's just Batman going around killing people. The the Martha twist, A, it gives us a reason why Batman hasn't killed the Joker since he kills everybody else. And it gives some personality to Thomas who has very little personality in this book other than I'm angry. Uh, I'm angry. And I've, I've built uh, a criminal casino empire to keep the criminals close. Yeah. That's a choice. There were a lot of choices in this may, uh, in this miniseries made Matt. And I don't think any of them were good. Yeah. Jim Gordon is a snivelly little bastard. Yeah. I don't think anyone in this book particularly has a personality. They're all chess pieces being moved around on a board. And this suffers from terminal Elseworlds disease in that it is, oh, let's, let's change everybody. Harvey's a judge. Selena is Oracle, except she's a quadriplegic because that's extra uh, quadriplegic, but it's extra mean here. You know, Cobblepot is friends with Thomas and probably still a sleaze. Speaking of sniveling, he's toady. And and Thomas also runs Gotham Security. They privatize the GCPD. I, I think I've said before, I run hot and cold on Azarello. And the past couple of stories have been reminders of why I run cold in Azarello at times. That Joker graphic novel and this. Mm. I, I think we could we could plot out all of the decisions made in like the, the storytelling and the 
you know, the, the figuring out what we want to say in this book. And I swear to God, each one of them is bad. Um, making Harvey a judge. Uh, I guess that wasn't terrible, but man, I really did not like Gordon being so subservient to Thomas. And I especially did not like Selena here. It was a real choice, I think, to make her a quadriplegic. And to show her as so fragile and frail and vulnerable. And again, I don't, I don't know why you make that choice. I don't know why. And I was off-putting for sure. Yeah. And they go out of their way to say that Jim didn't have a family in this world to explain why I guess there is no Barbara, but it's also, it's throwaway selena being oracle in that she provides some narration and is there as a gut punch story-wise but she doesn't matter to the story it's clear that joker put her in the chair because she you know why doesn't he kill that monster and a tear runs down her eye but it doesn't do anything for the story that it's selena it's not like selena would have been in a relationship with Thomas, Selena is Bruce's love interest. And there's also a bit with, you know, Bullock and Montoya and Bullock is just a useless drunk and Montoya is a bartender. And other than, hey, look, it's Bullock and Montoya. There was no reason to use those characters there. Again, terminal Elseworlds disease. Oh, look at these characters. I know these characters. I'm, I'm doing something different with them. Aren't I clever? And the fact that so much of the story is the Joker horribly menacing a pair of innocent children. And the thing that she does to Jim, where she basically gets Jim to shoot one of the kids. Whew, that's mean. Yeah, again. This book is mean, straightforward, through and through. And Relentlessly then, mean. Yeah. And then you get to the last issue. And the last issue is half flashbacks of how Thomas and Martha got to this place. And did we really need that? I mean, you get to a point at the, the revelation. It's like, okay, well, he became Batman because his son was killed. Do we really need to know why she cut her face, how she cut her face to make herself the Joker or these details? No. After, after she just slit Jim, Gro- uh, Jim Gordon's throat? You could have spent more time dealing with the emotion in the present and more of the stuff, the flashpoint stuff. Because there are these references to Thomas's conversations with Barry Allen about the possibilities of changing the world, about rewriting history to make things the way they should have been. But there's a reference in issue one and there's a reference in issue three, one conversation with Jim and a conversation between Thomas and Martha. I would have preferred spending more time seeing Thomas wrestle with that. But that might've been a dictum from Johns who was writing Flashpoint that he wanted to deal with that in the main book, but why give Thomas a spinoff if you aren't going to do anything with the emotional core of the character other than sales? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe make this book a more 
straightforward origin story do you devote all of the time instead of having this joker kidnapping being the the or the sense of urgency throughout the book maybe martha's deterioration like after after the shooting uh, I, at least that would have been i think a more interesting read you know seeing her put on the makeup for the first time that could have been something and you get to the end and oh speaking of fridging in a way martha just dies at the end and she falls into the well where bruce fell as a child and it, the bats come out and it's reusing there's a lot of reused symbology in this book there's that the friggin pearls and the fact that thomas and martha's final fight takes place outdoors in the rain i gotta imagine that was an intentional killing joke nod yelp and i have no problem with the conceit of thomas's batman and martha as the joker but i wanted if you're gonna do that Martha has to be a character. And the few flashbacks that you get in that last issue don't make Martha enough of a character. No. And there is some hint that not only was it, uh, was it Bruce's death that drove her to it, it was also Thomas. He's got the line that's the impetus for her cutting her face. I miss your smile, right? We could have had more of Thomas being an asshole Thomas not being able to cope with his wife's grief and pushing her farther and farther into this. Well, yeah, he was obviously a cold bastard at that point. I mean, you see him hunt down and beat Joe Chill to death with his bare hands. This is not a Thomas who is recognizable. He is broken by Bruce's death just as much as Martha is. And he remains a killer. He commits at least two murders in this book. He kills a victim of the Joker venom. Just, you know, Mercy kills him, snaps his neck. And he kills Croc, who is Azarello's favorite freaking character. I can't think of a Batman story by Azarello that does not feature a version of Croc. Well, not one. I can think of one. But he's in Broken City. He's in the Joker graphic novel. And he's in here. And I guess he's not in that one issue of in the middle of Super Heavy that we like, but that's Azarello with Snyder. And there was no logical reason why you could get Croc in there. But if there's an opportunity and a, log- a logical way to get in Killer Croc, Azarello will find a way. He's your man. Yeah. And I, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, everybody has a pet character or two they like to use. I mean, it's, it's also that Thomas is the one who's responsible in a way for Bruce's death because Thomas jumps Joe chill and wrestles with the gun and the gun goes off and kills Bruce. So Thomas is carrying that guilt, that weight, which is never particularly explored. No. And I wish it was. Maybe they're talking about that in this current flashpoint beyond miniseries, but I'm not reading it. So I don't know. Because John's is an asshole. Yes. Speaking of problematic creators, though not one directly involved in this story, other than he wrote the core miniseries of Flashpoint. This is the first of two Thomas Wayne Batmans that will appear in the next uh, three or four years. 
because the Batman of the New 52 Earth 2 is also Thomas Wayne. The second Batman, anyway, because Bruce is the first Batman. And when Bruce dies, Thomas turns out to be to be alive after all and becomes a new Batman. We'll explain how that all happens when we read those Earth 2 stories. Uh, okay. It's weird. That Thomas is an equally bad dude as this Thomas. Possibly worse. Is that the Thomas that Tom King had? No, this is that Thomas. This Flashpoint. This is the one who becomes the Batman who teams up with Bane. The one in this miniseries. So you can sort of see where he comes from and why he was such a bastard in that book Mm, yes but i i still i didn't buy his uh the central idea there that thomas would do anything to keep bruce from becoming batman including murdering basically everyone he loved Eh, that's a bit much you see a little bit of that with martha's reaction to bruce becoming batman I guess in the letter that he writes, which we will eventually have to cover Flashpoint. And when we do, we'll see the stuff about the letter. But it's, I'm not saying that something like the death of your child won't fundamentally change you. But at the same time, Thomas Wayne of Earth Prime does not seem to be a guy who has this level of malice in him. I could see him breaking in other ways, but I can't see that Thomas breaking and becoming a cold-blooded killer like this. It just it just seems like, I don't know, maybe writers come up with this idea and they they have him as just a, a just a villain just like anybody else. Uh, a good punisher analog that they could just drop into any story that they want. This was also the King stuff was in the same era where Jorel was back from the dead and was also a villain. So that was an odd parallel. I don't entirely get why everyone was suddenly like, hey, we need the two long dead fathers of our two marquee heroes to come back from the dead and both be bastards. Jorel as a villain only works when he's pissed off that nobody listened to him. Now, what did you think of Rousseau's art? Ah, that was another point I wanted to make. I hated the fucking layouts in this series. I hated them. I hated them, hated them, hated them. Uh, the art itself was perfectly fine, but so many of the layouts were just awkward. They lacked symmetry. It was just, wasn't nice to look at. Just like letterers, just do less with your layouts. Unless you are a god level talent that's true darwin cook jh williams they can do all that can or could do all the crazy layouts they like because they know how to tell the story through the crazy layouts exactly this though ugh, hated him lord knows the art the, the bleakness of of rizzo as an artist fits the bleakness of this story the other book we've read by him is grim knight so it's interesting that he draws dystopic Batmans. He has two other Batman stories, both of which are Azarello team-ups, the Wednesday comics, Serial, and Broken City. 
So we will eventually get to those. As always, we're going to get to everything. We are. But I don't know how much more we have to say. I will say, I know it wasn't obviously supposed to be funny, but Martha taking a ball-peen hammer and just repeatedly hitting Thomas and it having zero effect. It's kind of like, okay, that's not supposed to be funny, but it kind of is. I mean, is it supposed to be, you know, killing joke with the crowbar? Or not killing joke, death in the family with the crowbar? But, but a ball-peen hammer isn't really doing anything. Hey, that cowl is reinforced. And of course, post-Batman v Superman, Martha is always yeah. good for a laugh. Oh, yeah. I saw the same thing. And I, my notes is like, I know this was pre-BVS, but heh, Martha. Martha. Why did you say that name? It's, it's Joker's name. That's why I said it. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> uh i wonder where where is alfred in uh night of vengeance i'm trying to remember where alfred was he does i think eventually he shows up somewhere but he's I, they reference him in he had been he had been murdered by that point i i went back and he's like was he? And I was like, it was referenced in that the King run that Alfred was doing some sort of undercover work within the war and was murdered. But that was retcon. Ah, here we go. Alfred was captured by the Amazons while still undercover and was beheaded. But that's a, a retcon from the King run. So I don't entirely know why they didn't decide to use Alfred. I mean, there was an outsider miniseries, which is Alfred's supervillain alter ego. But I don't believe that that outsider was Alfred. That outsider was a different character. Before King's retcon, apparently, and I'm just reading from the Wikipedia or the DC wiki excerpt on Google. Alfred was also known to be the Wayne's butler in Gotham City, having been killed by the mentally unstable Martha Wayne following her son's death. Ah, so King messed up. There we go. Aside from that, I don't think we have anything else to say on this one. Do you? I'm all out. So that means it's time to put Batman, not a vengeance on the big board. This one does not crack the top half. Uh, no. So let's start with the, the Joker original graphic novel, the other Azarello that we have here. Better or worse? Mm, now down at 10 double deuce. Yep. Or 10 deuce. Interestingly, right behind Grim Knight, also by Eduardo Rousseau. Yeah. At least there is a story in Joker, right? I don't give a shit about the guy who's the central character in there, this low-level you know, mob shit, but at least there's a story. There's no story outside of this other than the reveal. There's nothing. Uh, you know, I've read this series knowing that Martha was the Joker. Uh, all of you listeners out there now know that Martha is the Joker. There's no need for you to go back and read this. You can live your life perfectly good and happy without having read this book. And so... At least there's a story in Joker. Yes. Okay, I, I can definitely see, see that. I don't think this falls into the lowest echelon, though. The no. Scarecrow, the, the, what I believe probably is the war games or lower echelon now. 
the you'd have to pay me to reread these <laughs> which means we i think at some point we again in the the conversation about stuff that needs to be moved i think we need to move the last batman story above war games because i would reread that nothing around it but that that strikes me as more rereadable than pretty much everything around it i would put this above harley and ivy at 107 yeah yeah, it's definitely not above Holy Terror. So I think making this our new 107 is the way to go. Holy Terror. You crazy swing for the fences. Exactly. You monkey astronaut, you. So that does it for this week. Next week, we pay tribute to one of the recently departed, one of the great bat artists of all time, of who we've spoken of favorably on many an occasion before and will at least one more time with three more stories with art by Tim Sale. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, conduit of outdated joke names. June, it's a mouthful, come on. Josh Wheel, Abigail Hartbaum. <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, Kyle Still, Christian Smith, and John Wickham for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.